The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters, where we host conversations with a a diverse range of wise people, spiritual teachers, scholars, activists, and uh, other experts to uh, inform you, inspire you, and help you along your own spiritual path. If you're tuning in for the first time, please go to uh, mindbodyspirit.fm and uh, enjoy all the previous interviews. They're all there waiting for you. They're free. And uh, it's it's an education in itself. And also, uh, for those of you uh, familiar with the previous podcast called Spirit Matters that I co-hosted uh, with Dennis Ramundi, uh, that archive also lives on uh, if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name, you'll find a few hundred interviews there as well. And today's guests are in that same category of wise and interesting people. I have two for the price of one. We have Kate Sheehan Roach, who served as the founding director of Contemplative Journal and managing editor at Pathios.com. Her work is now focused on contemplativelife.org and pro-social world, which we'll be talking about. She's also a a certified centering prayer presenter and serves on international boards for contemplative outreach. I'm going to ask her about that. And the United Religion Initiatives North American Leadership Council. And Jeff Janung is the managing editor of Pro Social World and co-founder of Contemplative Life. That's why they're on together, because they're both involved with those worthy projects, uh, and we'll be talking about them. Jeff is also a core team member of Transformation365.org, an experiential practice network, and his focus is on the integration of spirituality and science, the arts and technology. Um, Welcome, Kate and Jeff. Thank you, good to be here. So um, I always begin by asking our guests uh, to tell listeners who are not familiar with them about their own spiritual histories, uh, the overall arc of their journey and what brought them to the spiritual orientation they have and the work they're doing today. So since there's two of you, I'll ask you to be brief and we can always fill in as we go along. So who wants to go first? All right, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Phil. It's so great to be here with you. Um, Well, I often answer this question sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek and say my spiritual journey began in 1893. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm not quite that old, um, but I trace <laughs> the, the, the experience I'm having now um, to the Parliament of the World's Religions, which took place at the Chicago World Fair in 1893, where many of uh, 
leaders of the world's religions came together and the world was never the same. Um, personally, for me, that was my own experience as the youngest child of a large Irish Catholic family. I lived in a neighborhood in a time when technology was booming and all of my friends were the children of great scientists from around the world. Mm. And so my earliest friendships were with people from wide ranging religious backgrounds, spiritual experiences, and um, just deep, deep connection with these as a, as a youngster. So Tell us where that was, Kate. Uh, I, that was in New Jersey, where uh, Bell Laboratories was the, uh, was the big okay. scientific magnet that brought lots of people together um, from around the world, similar to the parliament. So, you know, that's that's one way to answer. Um, mm-hmm. I'll say that the deepening comes through uh, this this obstacle course known as life. Um, so the the free fall into um, spiritual unknowing is uh, is is my personal path. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Jeff, how about you? So I grew up in upstate New York in uh, a Catholic family and, you know, went to Catholic schools and that sort of thing. And uh, so my journey began, you know, before birth, I guess. Um, but at about the age of 10, I began to question some of the tenets of the faith asking questions about, you know, who is God and, you know, why is there something instead of nothing and asking people that were important to me, uh, religious leaders, adults uh, in my life. And the questions um, and the answers that I got back were uh, kind of disconcerting because um, the answers I was getting back were uh, I sensed, you know, what they believed or what they read or what they heard but even at that young age, intuited that it wasn't really coming from the depth of their own experience. And so I thought to myself, you know, surely these things can be known. You know, what kind of God creator would, you know, give us self-reflective consciousness and not reveal uh, the essence of these truths directly through experience? And so... It was really my first moment of liberation when I realized that kind of nobody knew. <laughs> so I started to, to go on a personal journey uh, and I lived, you know, out in the country and had, you know, conversations with great nature and with the stars and uh, in in the depths of my own experience. And after a few years uh, of this kind of deep inquiry, I had a transformative experience that changed everything. But with that came an even deeper curiosity. And that is what um, this experience uh, of mystery is like from different points of view, different frames of reference. So that curiosity set me down the path of spending time in monasteries and ashrams and temples and working with uh, practice leaders of different kinds. Um, not so much as a as an observer, but really as a practitioner to kind of be with them in a humble and receptive enough and patient enough way to have some sense of the gift that is being given. And so I've always had practices in my life and that uh, kind of set me down the path of entering into kind of the experience of interspirituality and having a sense of how the contemplative dimension of the different religious paths um, have a lot of common ground. And that set the course for everything that has come after. Very good. You were a precocious 10-year-old. <laughs> yes, among other things. Um since you mentioned the word interspirituality, let me uh, uh, go into that a moment because um, I know you both through the world of uh, interspiritual uh, activities. And um, <clears throat> Kate invoked the 1893 parliament. I saw you both at the uh, recent parliament in uh, 2023. Uh, in Chicago, and that is understood to be an interfaith 
a project. You used the term interspirituality. So let's, for those people in the audience who are not familiar with that term, tell us why it was coined, why it was needed when we already had the term interfaith, and what it actually means. Either one of you can jump in here. Jeff, I love how you give the history of this. I've, I've heard you say that before. I love to love to hear you say the history of it, and then I'll pick up where you leave off. Well, the word was coined by Brother Wayne Teasdale in a book that he wrote called The Mystic Heart, which has become a spiritual classic. He was a trustee uh, of the Parliament of World Religions in 1993 when it returned to Chicago after 100 years and it was that experience, as well as his experience of working with spiritual leaders uh, around the world, um, that the, the seeds of interspirituality kind of um, were planted in him. Um, and the way I would describe it kind of in brief is that spirituality is evolving, just like everything else. And if we go back... 150 years, and we look at some of the recent evolution of spirituality, uh, we think about things like ecumenism, intra-religious dialogue within a tradition, uh, trying to come together, because even within traditions, they you know become very diverse. So how do we bring them back together? So, uh, uh, you know, the ecumenism is an effort in that. But it's a good beginning but it's only a beginning because um, so, what about what's not your religion or tradition? And so it evolved from, you know, uh, ecumenism into interfaith and originally tolerance, acceptance, which is also it's, it's wonderful, but it's it's not enough. Interfaith, uh, you might say, began to evolve into interreligious, which is dialogue, exchange, um, which is also wonderful, but there's greater depths. And this is where interspirituality comes in. You might say it's the next edge where it, we're not just dialoguing and exchanging ideas and you know, kind of doctrines, but we're practicing each other's practices. We're enriched with each other's scriptures and wisdom teachings. Um, and we're able to do this on an experiential level. And so... Um, it's, you know, kind of the, the next wave. And also, um, it's inherently contemplative uh, because it's experiential. So that's how some of the ways I would explain it in brief. Over to you, Kate. Thanks, Jeff. I never grow tired of hearing you tell that story. Um, while you were speaking, I grabbed my copy of The Mystic Heart, uh, that book you mentioned by Wayne Teasdale that he wrote in 1999, kind of a prescient um, piece of literature that he wrote as his time on earth was running short. Um, and uh, I just opened up at random. And on page 31, Wayne Teasdale says, interspirituality is not a recent, quote, invention. And that's um, so, so wise of Wayne to point out that just because he coined this phrase, this term, and and people are treating it as a movement. It's really a, a very organic development in human evolution. Um, he says it has existed for centuries in India, China, and Persia. Our basic human curiosity about other cultures and mystical teachings inspires the continual growth of interspirituality. Um, you know, and he talks about the different ways that interspirituality can emerge. So we're we're riding a wave. We're we're following an evolutionary trajectory that is part of globalism. It's part of the healing of the rifts between cultures. And um, we would go so far as to say is it's it's the next wave of of um, human spirituality. You yeah. Thank you both. Um, you um, describe my own experience in the world of interfaith um, and how it's evolved. 
um, I always think of interspirituality as having, uh, for one thing, uh, influenced what people typically call interfaith gathering. I used to say interfaith gatherings were like the beginning of a bad joke about, you know, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar, because that's what it was, that's what it consisted of. And and it's expanded to be much more inclusive of the um, the broad range of spiritual paths, but it's also deepened in large part because of people like Brother Wayne and uh, Houston Smith and and all the people who called our attention to the uh, contemplative or meditative aspect, the practice aspect of the world's traditions and what we think of as uh, the mystical path. Um, so there's a vertical dimension that's added in, and, and is uh, brought to the center in interspirituality uh, as opposed to typical interfaith gatherings. And I'd love you to comment on why that's important. Uh, why? All right, I'll rather than put words in your mouth. <laughs> Why is it important to add that dimension to our coming together from different pathways? I'd love to um, quote my dear friend, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, on this one. A previous guest on Spirit Matters, I should add. Of course. Um, Rabbi Rami's <laughs> really been at the heart of this for, for many years, and um, he was actually part of the SOMAS dialogue that Father Thomas Keating convened in Colorado for many years, um, where, you know, sort of an ongoing uh, annual parliament of the world's religions, where leaders of the world's religions could come together behind closed doors without having to answer to their um, their congregations or the criticisms they were under, and, and just love one another, just practice with one another and experience one another in a way that um, is powerfully transformative. Um, so one of Rami's experiences there was talking about um, the theological differences between the world's religions and how it was not it was not acceptable to him for people to come together, have these lovely interfaith gatherings where they just embrace one another and Face-to-face, -face, they, they are um, very um, collegial and loving. And then they go back to their home congregation and teach their followers that the others are all damned to hell. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Rami just you know, spoke really clearly to that, that we have to get the violence out of, out of this message and move into um, a, a new understanding of our oneness. Um, so I, I appreciate being able to, um, borrow from someone who was in the room where it happened, um, <laughs> and it's still happening. Jeff, you want to add to that? Well, um, maybe one way of uh, relating to it is it's uh, somewhat of a movement from the head to the heart, from ideas about and doctrine in information to experience and transformation um, of being. Because when we practice together and when we um, enter into the heart of the contemplative dimension of a tradition or a path, we find remarkable unity and it's experiential unity. It's not just unity of thought, but it's unity of heart and being. And that's profound. Um, it, the way I also think about it, too, is using kind of a, a, a water skiing metaphor that uh, if you're kind of just like um, a bee, you know, pollinating flowers, going from flower to flowers, one thing is almost like um, skiing on the surface of the water and, you know, you're just skimming on the surface tension of it. But um, rather than just, you know, visiting and touching into different uh, traditions uh, on a surface level, um, if you dive in and go below the surface, 
then it's a whole different world down there uh, in um, in a world um, that you don't know what's going on in the shoreline up above. It's it's a it's a different dimension of experience. And I think that the contemplative and the inner spiritual offers that. And um, if I can evoke uh, Houston Smith, the great scholar of religion, he um, distinguished between. I don't know if it's his, his invention, but he, he told it to me. The um, exoteric aspect of religion, which is uh, exo meaning outer, where people have different doctrines and dogmas and interpretations of history and uh, founders, and that's where arguments and fights and tribalism comes in. And the other aspect of esoteric aspect of religion is the experiential, which is what you're focused on and what you described just now with your uh, beautiful water skiing metaphor. And that's where unity is found. That's where oneness is found. The differences sort of dissolve. Uh, and I'm sure you agree that that's, that's what you find when you bring people together and practice together. They, that's the, not just the the mood of uh, connection, but the experience of what what's deep within us all and common to us all. Um, there, I, I did put words in your mouth. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the organizations you're you're both involved with. Um, let's start with contemplative life. Um, who would like to describe what it is and what its purpose is? Well, maybe I'll take that one. Um, because uh, contemplative life, uh, the inspiration for it um, really relates to the question you asked at the beginning. Is it, you know, kind of what started your spiritual journey? So uh, what happened to me is that by... Um, practicing all these different practices and all these different spiritual and religious contexts, and then um, bringing uh, these practices into my business and professional life as an entrepreneur um, and as a, a technology executive, bringing practices into the boardroom, into the company culture, um, working also with youth and children uh, working with, as a hospice volunteer, people that wanted to die consciously, um, working in educational settings. What happened is that I came to the realization along the way that everyone is contemplative. But everyone may not know that about themselves, but the reason I knew it is because everybody has an inner life. It comes with the deal um, and the way that they meet that mystery is very different. It's very personal. Um, and also when it comes to contemplative practices, there's no one size fits all. Uh, there's no panacea. What is right and perfect for one may not be for another because it depends on so many variables. Uh, it depends on, you know, first how you're wired heart, head, hands, um, what's, you know, what's your state of life? Is it in crisis? Is it in flow? Different practices might be appropriate. What's your educational, spiritual, religious upbringing? So all these different impressions that are laid down. And, and it's very confusing, actually. And so during that period of time, um, also witnessing youth leaving organized religion in record numbers. But having worked with so many youth, I realized they're not leaving because they're not interested in spirituality. They're deeply interested. But I kept on hearing three recurring themes that I'm really uh, yearning for something that is authentic, meaningful, and deeply experiential. And so I realized that in some respects, they're looking for transformative practice and communities of practice. But where do you go? What do you do? You know, what practice is right for what person? Who's qualified to teach? Now, these are big questions. 
And so recognizing that particularly young people that grew up in the era of uh, the digital world, their digital natives, if they're going to look for something, they're going to start there. And so the idea was to create a hub that would bring myriads of practices and communities of practice together where people could go and on their own terms um, find uh, practices of interest and connect with others of like mind. And so that was the inspiration for contemplativelife.org as, as a nonprofit organization, which is how through which I, I met and began working with Kate delightfully. <laughs> Kate, do you want to add to that? Tell us uh, what what people will find at uh, contemplativelife.org. I'd love to. Yeah, it's just a beautiful uh, offering where people can click through and learn more about dozens and dozens of contemplative practices. Um, you mentioned Jeff being part of Transformation 365. Um, this is a, a, a wonderful offering where we have videos of practices from a really wide range of people. We've let it grow organically. Just whoever comes and wants to record a, um, a practice, we record with them so that people can experience the practices and then um, connect further. So they, they really get an opportunity to explore on this website um, and then go deeper on, on their own. Um, it's funny um, when, when, as Jeff was experiencing this, um, this need. I was also. I didn't. I didn't know Jeff yet. I was. I was working on contemplative journal, um, but with the very same mission of providing a, a place, a place to land for so many of us who are sort of, you know, by virtue of our willingness to venture out of the norm, we're kind of in exile sometimes, or we can feel that way. We can feel kind of like spiritual refugees, kind of wandering around looking for a place to belong. So that's where Contemplative Journal became sort of a, um, you know, a, a, a gathering place. And uh, and when um, that was winding down, um, my good friend, Kurt Johnson, who's been such a loving steward of this whole idea of interspirituality, introduced me to Jeff. And our first conversation, I was just stunned. I felt like Jeff had gotten a hold of my my notes, my notebooks, because everything he said to me was was what I was doing. And same same back to him. So we again, we recognize that we're, we're part of something larger than ourselves. We're not spiritual entrepreneurs in the sense that we're coming up with ideas and bringing them to the world. We're just um, paying attention and serving the world as best we can. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I'm looking at one of the pages on uh, the website contemplativelife.org website it's it's and i'm just looking at body of practices and there are um buttons i guess is the term within which are a great variety within each are a great variety of practices and we have movement practices health and well-being mindfulness resources yoga meditation social action compassion spiritual traditions, creative, artistic, nature, and environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a lot. Um, it, it, it sounds like you're covering all the bases of uh, possible uh, portals into spiritual experience. It was obviously a, a major job of gathering all this. And my question is, how do you keep up? Because there's new stuff coming along all the time. Somebody's got some new variation of something. Somebody's discovered uh, some new practice from uh, some tradition. Uh, they're up on YouTube. Somebody writes a book. Somebody invents something. Um, 
are you do you, are you able to keep up do you update from time to time well the new ones are added all the time and you, you can't keep up because you know <laughs> part of the idea behind this is that there's more there than we know yeah. we're we're you know swimming in an ocean of contemplative practice and contemplative community but oftentimes we don't know um you know we don't know how to connect the dots one of the things that's on there too is a way to find uh, centers of practice mm. where you can you know do a search in there and it just take you to whatever you know city or area you're looking to find something in and so it's um it's a labor of love it's uh you know it's a, a nonprofit service organization and uh it's a work in process and it's always a work in process and it will always be the idea behind it is to um the, the the mission of the organization is very simple. It's connecting people and communities with transformative practices. So it doesn't feature people um, or practice leaders per se, because it's not about a, a person. It's about the practice and it's about the community. Um, and so what we try to do is to give the cliff notes of these uh, so that they're jumping off points. Mm -hmm. Somebody that lands on there, well, this is interesting. And then they land over in something and say, I like that. And then that's a jumping off point to go there to where the source of that content is. We just provide the cliff notes for it. Um, and then you can go and connect with that practice or that community, that sort of thing. And um, it's, uh, it's an ongoing process. And it's a, ter a terrific service uh, in the current spiritual environment uh, where people are carving out their own individual paths and, as you said, uh, trying to orient their daily practices, their spiritual uh, input uh, to synchronize with their own needs and their own uh, inclinations and their own personalities and backgrounds. Um, this independent spirituality has been growing and growing as you as you know for decades now and i think back to when i first started got it launched on my own spiritual path in that same spirit uh it wasn't as easy there was no internet and even though i was living in urban centers it was like well where do i find this or i heard about that and somebody lends you a book <laughs> and but one of the characteristics of of this uh, this uh, resource that you've created, you you've mentioned community a few times, and one of my observations in the world of independent spirituality or an unaffiliated seeking and spiritual but not religious is the one thing that organized religions do well is bring people together on a regular basis. Um, the world of alternative spiritualities, community is uh, not as concrete. Um, how do you address that? How, what do you advise people who feel, you know, uh, very confident perhaps and very adventurous in their spiritual life, but also alone? Bill, you're speaking to something huge right now in our world. Um, this this loneliness factor. Um, you know, as Jeff mentioned, um, the research shows you know people are leaving the organized religions in in droves. Um, I, I want to be really clear that the the interspiritual movement isn't about those inside. The, the the institutions and those outside the institutions. It's not. It's 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 all inclusive. Right. But that being said, as as the old model of you know just following your grandparents and great grandparents and parents into a a, a tradition that meets the need of community, like it or not, um, you know there's a loss that comes from this adventurous spirit. There's there's a loss of connection and um, 
that's what we're that's what we're addressing, and many others are addressing as well. That 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 really what contemplative life is doing is bringing together the dozens and dozens and countless organizations that are also addressing this. So we're we're um, we're moving away from the idea of you know trying to be the one, the comprehensive place to go for your interspiritual connection. No, it's just it's the act of connecting that will be the It'll be the 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 resolution of this problem. That the problem is actually the solution, if that makes any sense. The idea that we are um, moving in the direction of a much more fluid affiliation, multiple belongings, um, staying connected with your faith of origin, but also connecting with many others. That actually is a very cohesive um, movement, and it actually there's there's much greater opportunity. For people of all various traditions and beyond traditions, secular and uh, and non-religious, coming together on this common ground. I'm glad you uh, uh, added that dimension of people being involved in interspirituality who are also deeply connected with a uh, tradition and uh, feel a, a sense of identity and belonging within it, but are open and adventurous and curious and want to learn and, from others and practice from others. And Doc, uh, Brother Wayne was an example of that because I he came to my attention back in the day because here was a, uh, a, a Christian contemplative, a, a monk who was busy work working with and learning from uh teachers from the east and eastern traditions that uh and was a great uh, example in that respect and i find a lot of people uh do that especially as <laughs> well all right, let me ask you this a lot in the world of independent spirituality um i've i've seen people suddenly they have children and the children are growing up and they say, well, I'd like to give my children a spiritual home. Where do I find that? Have you found something like that um, of people sort of returning to or seeking a more traditional uh, spiritual communities where there's a congregational life uh, because of their children and wanting children to belong. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a, well, it's it's true um, because a lot of baby boomers um, and um, you know uh, generations after that, uh, the next generation or two that then well that left organized religion and then then began having children. Um, was like, well, we were given, you know, something, what are we going to give to our children kind of thing? Um, and so there is that kind of returning, but there's also the, the returning of yearning for something that is authentic and meaningful and experiential. So to, how do you find that, um, you know, within the tradition of your birth or your tradition of preference? Um, and, and so, you know, again, that's a work in process as well. Um, and there's new things that are forming as a result of that, new types of community and experience. And, and I want to follow up on something you said, both of you said before, because it's really important. Interspirituality isn't um, a, a moving away from organized religion. In fact, it's a deepening of it. Um, and so the majority of practitioners have a tradition. They've got a root that they're growing on. The difference is they've got shoots growing off that root. Um, and those shoots are, are often producing significant fruit because what um, inner spiritual practitioners will find is that there are riches to be had from other traditions that may not exist in your own. And also riches that you find in other traditions only to find that they are in your own but right. undiscovered. Both of those things are very true. Um, and, you know, Wayne Teasdale himself was 
exemplified uh, interspirituality because yes, he was, he actually originally took a vows as a Christian sannyasi under Father B. Griffiths in Shantivanam, India, which right. is, you know, kind of an integration of Hinduism and Catholicism in a sense. Um, and, but then what most people don't realize is that later in his life, he took cross vows as a Benedictine under Cardinal George of Chicago, under a Cardinal, um, uh, which is very interesting. So here's one, you know, cross vows um, within a tradition um, in one where you know, Cardinals don't normally do that sort of thing, but did in the case because Cardinal George and Brother Wayne had a very deep relationship. Um, so there are um, people that are looking at, you know, for, you know, for their children or their families. I had the same thing personally. And one of the things that I did when my children were really young, um, even though I'm a contemplative Christian um, and I had a community, uh, but I wanted them to experience the, the banquet of possibilities. So I took one year and uh, every weekend, uh, Saturday or Sunday, um, we visit a different tradition, um, hmm. you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, you name it, um, just kind of went around the horn. Um, and so they had, you know, kind of a sample of what all these different experiences were like so that ultimately they could make their own choice. Very good. Anything to add to that, Kay? Uh, I'd love to. Um... I, I, it all resonates, and I'd like to sort of turn it, turn the question on its head. Um, I spend a lot of time with people feeling, you know, cheerful concern for their children and grandchildren because what are they going to do? They don't have any churches to go to or synagogues. They're not, they're not praying. They're not doing what what we did. And um, my gentle answer to that is, listen to the children. Listen mm. to them. They have much to show us. Um, you know, Jeff was sharing how his awakening was when he was 10 years old. Um, I had a similar experience um, at a similar age. And um, and my own children are now 24 and 21. And um, I also wanted to give them that banquet. I love that term, Jeff, the feast, you know. But ultimately, it was they who taught us a new openness that that um, they had much more to show us uh, than we did to show them and and paying attention to what the next generation are bringing is crucial. It's, it's, it's one of the most important elements of my work where I ask myself in whatever I do, is this important to the next generation? And if it's not, it's not important to me. It's got to be um, forward into um, meeting meeting needs that we may not fully understand, um, but it's that collaboration, that intergenerational collaboration, is another really important part of of this of this work we do. Thank you. That's fascinating. And actually, now it, it's kind of multi generational because you know there's people in the interspiritual world either in or getting close to 80 in their 80s there's and then you know generations between them and the college age people and the high school age people and they I I I don't have kids so uh, but whenever I come into contact with young people my mind is blown because I realize uh, they're both um recapitulating a lot of what happened when I was their age, but they're totally different at the same time. And somehow, you know, the karmic waves have, you know, brought <laughs> different orientations into being. So that kind of intergenerational interaction sounds to be very important, which maybe that's a segue, I'm not sure, to a pro-social world. Um Tell us about that. You're both involved with it. You're uh, the 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 uh, 
Logline is a nonprofit organization whose purpose is to consciously evolve a world that works for all. What do you mean by that? What does pro-social world do? Yes, I've had, I'll give a short answer and then turn it over to you for the for the for the full-bodied response. But that just a, just a, a perfect segue, Phil, because if if it's evolutionary, it's about the next generation. It's about the 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 adaptive qualities of our species and other species. So indeed, pro-social world is um, is an evolutionary, uh, scientific and spiritual um, exploration. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll let Jeff go into details. He's he's got the, he's got much to say. Well, I, I would say that um, you could break it down into three words: conscious, cultural, evolution, and also three sciences that have come together to facilitate that. Um, one of the foundational sciences is based on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in economics um, for you know, her work in dispelling the myth around the tragedy of the commons and the core design principles, which uh, really were hiding in plain sight um, the the playbook for cooperation of how human beings are doing it and how groups and communities have always done it. Uh, these uh, eight core design principles uh, for which he won the Nobel Prize, first woman to ever win the Nobel Prize in economics. So that's one foundational science. She was a social political scientist. The other science is evolutionary science. So David Sloan Wilson, a renowned evolutionary scientist uh, began uh, discovering Eleanor Ostrom's work before she won the Nobel Prize, and he realized that her work is evolutionary. And so they began collaborating. And what uh, David, his work has been, is in really what you might consider the new evolutionary science, kind of like the new physics. This is the new evolutionary science, not based on uh, biological genetic evolution exclusively, and not based on uh, competition and, you know, survival of the fittest, but based on cultural evolution, based on cooperation, um, and uh, based on conscious evolution, which we now know is possible. And then the third science is contextual behavioral science. And what that does is it provides the means by which groups and communities can learn the tools of how to cooperate, psychological flexibility, being able to adapt. Because it's one thing to want to change or evolve, but how do you do it? So these three sciences have come together um, and they've come together in a way in which um, is basically offering a framework, you might say, because it's, it's not a panacea, it's you know not a one size fits all. It's a framework for cooperation that's evidence-based, that's repeatable, and facilitates groups and organizations, potentially of any scale, to cooperate and, and flourish. And so that's kind of the, the cliff notes of ProSocial World, also a nonprofit organization, very young, only a few, few years old, but um, uh, was a spinoff from another nonprofit, the Evolution Institute, um, and has been actively, you know, training facilitators and uh, working with groups and organizations to share this uh, framework for cooperation. The term pro-social world, um, was it an intentional coinage uh, to um, counter the common word antisocial? Well, um, I would say, yeah, not so much to counter that, mm -hmm. um, per se, but, um, to, you know, emphasize this other dimension of human exchange, um, human experience, um, which, uh, is one of those things that people resonate with, 
Um, it, and why does it resonate? It's because that's who we are. We're social creatures. You know, the, the reason that we're here um, and we've made it this far from an evolutionary standpoint isn't uh, because we were just better competitors. We're better cooperators. Um, we're social creatures. And in a sense, we've lost our way. Um, and so part of this is, is uh, finding our way uh, together in how we can uh, co-create in a very conscious and compassionate way, a better world. I can, I can just add that the word pro-social is sort of emerging uh, all over the place. And mm. similar to, you know, this idea of interspirituality, that there are times um, um, in, in, in the history of language, I'm actually a historian by academic training. So one of the things I look for is when new words emerge, um, there's a reason for that. It, it's a sign of evolutionary leaps. Um, this is really a quantum leap when, when we're moving into an era where pro-sociality is the goal. Um, it's very frustrating to live in a world where there's, where there is so much antisocial behavior. There's so much brutality. It's so difficult. But the fact that we recognize it is an evolutionary mm. game, um, that we're aware is making life so much more painful. Um, but it's through those, 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 those are birthing pains, birthing into a new humanity that is based on an understanding that um, the good of the whole is the only good there is. That's interesting. What you, you just said something important that I don't want to, I want to make sure it doesn't get lost. You said the fact that we're aware of it is significant. Um, we're recording this on uh, October 19th, 2023. Uh, the world's aflame. There's all kinds of craziness going on, just death and destruction uh, and dysfunction in our own government. And um, it's painful to turn on the news and, and look at the headlines every day. And I'm thinking of what you just said, it's entirely possible that in ages past or generations past, um, what we find unacceptable now may have just been accepted as part of life. And the very fact that so many of us react this way may be an evolution, a sign that we've evolved a bit. I don't know. Well, you're the historian. Does that make sense to you? Kate? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I often feel I'm a voice in the wilderness on this one because it, it's so prevalent. The pain is so palpable. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to look back very far. Uh, I live in Philadelphia where people would pack a picnic lunch to go watch a lynching. Not a hundred years ago. I mean, really? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we see we have modern day lynchings. We have this going on. To those who are um, are stuck, are stuck in um, we're all, we're all stuck. But to the extent that we can become unstuck, I think depends on this evolutionary embrace of of the wholeness of of our planet and beyond. Um, yeah, I think I think it, it, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to say, but I think that. Um, the birth birthing pains. I think I think Andrew Harvey actually wrote about this in his book Hope, um, where he was at one point in in Turkey, I believe, where he was you know in a busy town square, busy city, and suddenly there's this woman screaming in pain, and 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 he's like, oh my, this woman's dying. Somebody help her. She's screaming in agony, and as he's you know calling for help, he realizes she's in labor. She's giving birth there in the, in the city streets in Istanbul. And he uses this analogy to, to describe sort of that agony that we're in um, mm. as a species and, and as a planet. Um, can It can be the birthing if we allow it to be. Or Valerie Carr says the same thing in her work, uh, a wonderful Sikh teacher about her own experience as a birthing mother and recognizing that this darkness that we're in could be the the womb, is she says, is the darkness, the tomb or the womb? 
And so inter, introspection, interspirituality, the willingness to sit with this, sit in this painful situation um, is, is part of this contemplative commitment to, to be transformed in this cauldron, in this, in this, um, in this difficult time. Um, Jeff, you said it best just a couple days ago and end of one of our calls, you just said, oh, there's so much to pray for. And you felt it. I could feel your voice of, of the weight of it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, this is not an, it's not an easy time. It's not, I'm not looking for the sunshine, you know, and rainbows and butterflies answer here. It's, it's, um, it's real suffering and real destruction. And what do we do with it? I, I want to add, uh, uh, as a, an editorial comment from the host, um, Every whenever somebody says it could be the birth of, or even um, more triggering for me is when people say it is the birth. Uh, all this is the, something new is being birthed, and it's going to be you know a new world and all that. There's often that's often greeted by people with a, a sense of relief and and that it's all inevitable. And I just want to say, if we're birthing something new, we're all midwives and we have to roll up our sleeves and make it a birth instead of, you know, thinking that somehow, you know, there's something inevitable or automatic about, you know, the sun coming out again. Um, birth, is, birth is dangerous. <laughs> birth is one of the most dangerous medical procedures. Any of us, we've all gone through it. Um, and those of us who have delivered a child know that we we risk our lives to birth yeah yeah okay now we've talked about contemplative life and we've talked about pro-social world how do they come together you're both involved in both those enterprises where does spirituality enter into pro-social world and these three sciences you described at the core of it. There you go, Kate. Answer that one. Um, and yeah. delivered. <laughs> so, um, even as we speak, this is this is evolving. Uh, I, I want to quote my my dear colleague Susan Soleil, who uh, works with us in Pro Social World, and also um, initiative that that I'm working with within Pro Social World is called Pro Social Spirituality. And she said just kind of playfully the other day, spirituality is sprinkled all throughout pro-social world. I love that gentle terminology of sprinkling. Um, and yet um, one initiative within pro-social world is actually um, collecting data and studying how spirituality impacts group oh. cohesion and collaboration. So we're, we're actually conducting research by bringing groups together um, for some, some for eight weeks, some for 10 weeks, where we actually enter into a group's dynamic, facilitate conversation and um, decision-making. And we, they, these wonderful um, groups have welcomed us in um, so that we could study uh, how spirituality is impacting them. And, and, and we use Wayne Teasdale's Nine Elements of Interspirituality as the, 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 the vertical dimension to complement Eleanor Ostrom's eight core design principles that are more the horizontal dimension of, of group function. Um, just recently, we, we, we wrapped up a group yesterday um, and one of the participants described our gatherings as radical reflection with support. And mm. I love that. So that's, that. There's a lot more I could say about that, but that's, um, that's, that's sort of the, the, the leading edge of what we're doing right now in pro-social spirituality. Jeff, you want to add to that? Well, well, just this, that you know, I mentioned, you know, three words, conscious, cultural, evolution, three sciences, the social, political, evolutionary, contextual, behavioral sciences, three outcomes, research, experiential learning, two sides of the same coin, and then um, in service of facilitating a major evolutionary transition. So pro-social is itself, if you think about kind of how an artificial intelligence um, 
corpus is it's a blank canvas and then information is put into it and then it begins to kind of evolve accordingly garbage in garbage out well pro-social is evolving you know mm. you can tell there's three sciences it's not over um and pro-social spirituality and interspirituality is the next edge that's finding its way into the corpus of these other sciences and it's finding its way naturally it's finding its way through evidence um, and, um, it's, it's part of the edge of how this thing, you know, is evolving. And it's also an indication, you know, the saying necessity is the mother of invention. Well, we face two existential crisis events, the environmental crisis and the nuclear crisis, both man-made, um, they need human solutions as well as divine solutions. Um, and it's interesting that in a world of division, simultaneously what's arising at the same time is a means by which to engage in profound cooperation. So the, the work that really Kate is stewarding, talk about you know midwifing and, and birthing, uh, this thing of pro-social spirituality, is is the next next edge and it is profound and i would guess i'm going to predict uh, some of the outcomes of your research <laughs> um <laughs> a couple of weeks ago i was at the one planet peace forum where i missed seeing kate because she couldn't uh, attend after all and and a big part of our theme that weekend was exploring how uh spirituality uh, contemplative spirituality uh, related to social concerns, social justice issues, and social uh, change, social uh, betterment. Um, and I think most of our experience, those of us who've been on these paths for many years, is that when people, uh, if you have a deep spiritual practice that's truly transformative, you become a better person and you see connection where you didn't see connection before. And you see compat, you find compassion where before you might have found indifference. And um, so I'm going to predict that you've, you're going to find profound connection between a spiritual practice and uh uh, the ability to consciously cooperate and do good things in the world. We only have a couple of minutes left. I'm going to turn it over to each of you for final words to our listeners. Uh, what do you want to leave them with? Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Phil, for this amazing conversation. Uh, you are a very gifted um, facilitator, and uh, I'm, I'm really thankful to be a part of this. Um, I'm, 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 I'd like to close just remembering one of Wayne Teasdale's nine elements. They're fascinating to look at, but, but the one that I'm thinking of is, is cultivating a life of deep humility, that all of this must be cultivated with deep humility, not just because that makes us seem, you know, humble, but because that's the key to learning is is not knowing, not thinking we know, and actually applying whatever intellectual, spiritual, collective resources we have. Um, in the same way we would want to find a cure for cancer, we would want to conduct really high-level, um, maximum capacity, leading-edge research to, to help us with that. Um, and spiritual communities need that. Um, we need to merge spirituality and science in the same way that um, our intellect and our spirit are collaborating within us at all times. Um, the more we can can do that, I think, um, the better. So thanks for letting us talk about it today. Thank you, Kate. And thanks for the kind words. Jeff? Uh, well, I'd like to thank you, Phil, and uh, thank your audience. Uh, spirit does matter. It matters profoundly. <laughs> And I'd like to just end with a call to action that in this uh, profound time that we find ourselves, um, it would be very useful for contemplatives 
to become more active and for activists to become more contemplative. Thank you. Uh, that's a beautiful summary of uh, what we've been talking about and a vital message. And I would also invite our listeners to uh, go to uh, ProSocial World, Google it, and to contemplativelife.org. Avail yourselves of these uh, terrific resources, find out more, and also um, go back into the archive of this show. You will find uh, some of the people who were mentioned here, Rami Shapiro, Andrew Harvey, and many others involved in interspirituality and the uh, important intersection between the inner life of spirituality and the outer life of uh, good citizenship. Uh, so everybody, please subscribe to the website, tell your friends about it. Look at my website, philipgoldberg.com, email me with your suggestions and um, sign up for my mailing list and tell your friends about Spirit Matters now on mindbodyspirit.fm. Thanks again, Kate and Jeff. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts.